0: you 're doing well, uh, I know these uh, kind of settings are uh, are a joy they 're also a strain. I know in certain ways, and I just pray the Lord would help the joy surpass the strain, so that you just can really enter into the good things that the Lord has for you in this weekend and uh, revel in the, uh, the kindness of the Lord and His goodness to bring together people who can stimulate one another to, to, to love and good deeds and, uh, and be, be a, a source of strengthening of your faith and your hope in God. And surely I hope these sessions will contribute to that as well. Uh, last night we saw grace on display as we saw the grace of God manifest through His holiness. The holiness of God, this, this otherness, His separateness, his, uh, uh, his, his independence, his fullness of life, self-existent and, uh, and totally apart from crea- the created order. And yet he made this created order and comes to it. And in particular, he comes to sinners. Isn't that amazing? That's us. He comes to those who are weak and frail and needy and hopeless and helpless and depraved and unworthy. And He brings to us grace, such amazing grace from such an amazing God. Well, this morning we're, we're going to extend really that theme in a way that will help us see more of the, the grace of God now through goodness on display. And the focus here will be looking at one aspect of God's goodness, particularly His covenantal redeeming love. That is the love that He has for His own the love that he has for those whom he has chosen from eternity past. The love that he has for those who are in his family. The love that he has for those who he brings to himself to be his forever. You know, it's, a, it's a, a, an amazing thing that you would think the topic of the love of God would be simple, would be easy to talk about. This ought to be the frosting on the cake, right, you know? Uh, it, it, it should be just the, 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 uh, the, the most uh, uh, peaceful and uh, relaxed kind of conversation to have uh, in, in speaking about the love of God. But in fact, in Scripture, it is clear that the love of God is not a simple and easy thing to think about and talk about. Uh, There is a book by Don Carson, which I'll just mention to you now, that if you've never read this book, it would be a great thing to follow up on after this session. It's entitled, The Difficult Doctrine of." And you might think with a title like that the rest of it would be, The Difficult Doctrine of Divine Wrath, or The Difficult Doctrine of Hell, or something like that. But here's the title of the book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Yes, difficult. And here's why. Because the love of God in the Bible is complex, not simple. It's complex, not simple. Most Christian people out there, not you necessarily, but most Christian people out there, when they think of the love of God, they think of one thing only. The simple idea of God's universal, impartial, equally distributed favor to all people. His equal love for everyone alike. And that concept of the love of God is in the Bible. It surely is. I think John 3.16 is uh, perhaps the supreme uh, expression of that universal, impartial love of God that we find in all of Scripture. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And I, you know, live in a reformed culture myself, and I know some of my reformed uh, brothers uh, in, in particular are uh, prone to take that verse and read it in a selective way. God so loved the world of the elect. God so loved the world of those whom he had chosen. All those in the world that are his own. I don't think you can read that verse that way. I think this is a misreading of John 3.16 because in context, three verses later in John 3.19, we read, Light has come into the world, but men loved the darkness rather than the light. They would not come to the light lest their evil deeds be exposed. Well, if the world is comprised of people who reject the light, then guess what? The world is broader than His own. This is referring to people who are not His own, who reject that light. So back to verse 16. I think verse 16 has to mean God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. I'll just throw this out there as a little teaser. It's one of the reasons that I do not hold the doctrine, the Calvinist doctrine of limited atonement. I don't believe that that's what the Bible teaches. Most Reformed people do. I don't. Uh, I think John 3.16 is exactly an expression of the atoning sacrifice of Christ for everyone in the world. And uh, I know we can agree to disagree on that, and that's fine. It's not a cardinal area of, of theology. But it is something I think is important because this verse is expressing the love of God for everyone in the world in the context of God giving His Son. Well, obviously, the giving His Son is not just the Incarnation. You know, the Son coming into the world. It's the purpose of that incarnation, namely the Son dying for sinners. So I I see that as one of a number of passages that indicate a broader extent of the atonement. But whether you agree with that or not, I think John 3.16 is a very clear statement of universal love of God for all people. Another example of universal love is in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus instructs us not only to... Um, to to love those whom we find easy to love but even to love our enemies And, and, and by doing that to be like our Father in heaven who sends rain upon the just and the unjust. I remember as a boy when I read that verse uh, I didn't like rain, and so I thought rain was a judgment. You know, he, he sees his judgment on the on the on the good and the uh, and the unrighteous. And I thought, boy, that's kind of odd. Well, then many years later, I visited the country of Israel, and I realized, wow, rain is a blessing. This is not judgment. This is goodness. The goodness of God. The rain that brings life is given both to the righteous and the unrighteous. So here is the love of God for all people. He he grants. Even this moment, no doubt, breath to a person who's using that breath to curse God. How amazing is God's kindness to grant life, breath, all things to everyone who lives and all of creation sustaining it. So yes, there is a sense in which there is a universal, impartial dimension of the love of God to all people. Now, Here's where it gets tricky. Though that is true and it is glorious, it is not the only understanding or the only sense of the love of God in the Bible. In fact, it's not even the most prominent. I mean, try to find verses on the universal love of God. Look carefully at context and you will find there are pitiful few. In contrast, The majority of passages that speak about God's love for people is in a context of his love for his own. That is not a general, universal, impartial love, but a love for those whom he has chosen, a love for his own children, his love for his own bride. So really the goal that I have in this time this morning is for all of us to, to embrace the love that God has for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, which is a distinctive kind of love. Now here, 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 for example, are some passages which indicate that this love of God for some, not others, is in fact taught in the Bible. The most, I suppose you could say, in your face example of this distinctive love for some, not others, is Romans 9.13. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Now I know people who hold the the view that the love of God is always and only one thing, namely impartial, equally distributed favor for all people, will read Romans 9.13 and think it must be that the only reason God loves Jacob and hates Esau is because something about Jacob and Esau respectively. It has to be that Esau has done something that warrants the disfavor of God and Jacob has not. So the distinction there can't be from God because God must love Jacob and Esau equally because that's what the love of God is. Well, my friends, think again. Before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad, that the choice of God according to his purpose might stand, not because of the one who runs or works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Malachi 1, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. So, I, I don't know if this is difficult for you to hear. Yeah, I, I don't know where you are in your pilgrimage, you know, theologically, and understanding the God of the Bible, But here is a text that is clear that the love of God for Jacob is by God's choice, God's purpose. His call to Jacob was his own call to him, not to Esau. And it has nothing to do with relative merits, as it were, moral differences between Jacob and Esau before the two were born, before either had done anything good or bad you hear that? No moral disparity at the human level. What makes the difference? God's choice. Yep. It's in your face. It is just right there. If you look carefully at what it says, it is crystal clear. This is a love that God has for some, not others, by His choice. Now, though that is kind of a shocking thing for for many Christian people to come to see, it can be, it can should be glorious. Do you know why? Because the love that God has for you as a believer is far more like the love of parents for their own children or the love of a husband for his own wife than it is the love that we are to have for all people everywhere in the world. Don't parents have a particular love for their own children? To care for them, provide for them, save for them. We're past the college years, thankfully. Oh my goodness. I mean, the the, the investment that you give as parents for your own children is incredible. You know this, many of you. You're doing it right now, most of you. So This love that, that you have for your own children is a love that marks them out. As those upon whom you have set your commitment to care for, to love, to, 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 uh, uh, to, to nurture and cultivate, to protect and provide, you for your children is a love that is distinctive. Even though you love all the kids out there, you love your own in a particular way. And a husband, And a husband's love for his wife is a particular kind of love. He better not love all women equally. He better have a love for his own wife that is distinctive. And wouldn't we all say that's healthy? That's a good thing for a husband to have a distinctive love for his own wife? Now the reason that I raise those two analogies is because they're right out of the Bible in terms of God's love for us. So think for example of Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So verse three announces, let God be praised, let the Father be praised for all of these blessings that he has brought to us. What's the first one that he names in verse four? Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What's the first thing that comes to the Apostle Paul's mind when he thinks, why should God be praised? Election. He chose us in Christ. If He had not chosen us in Christ to be holy and blameless, we would never be with Him. You see that? The whole whole purpose of our lives Eventually, to be with the Lord forever in His presence as holy people depends upon an act that God did before He created the universe. It's called divine election. He chose us in Christ before He created the world, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. Do you remember Isaiah 6? God cannot have sin in his presence. He cannot abide sin. We must be holy. Guess what God designed from the very beginning? That we would be those holy people. But then he goes on. He expands that concept of the election of God to be holy in the next verse. In love, ah, here's our word, love. The love of God. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. Through Jesus Christ to himself, to himself, here is the Father who says, not only, not only have I chosen you to be a holy people, holy as I am so you can be with me, I have chosen In my love, destined you in advance. That's what predestined means. It simply means to establish one's destiny in advance toward something. And usually the context tells you what that destiny is. Here the destiny is, that God established in advance, is to be his own children. Brought into his family to experience the love that he has for them as his own I'm just curious, how many of you here have adopted children? Quite a few, quite a few. I mean, I, we, we do not. You know, I just think back on when Jody and I were having our family, and uh, the, we did not even think the, the thought of adoption I mean, I did, the times have changed a lot in recent years, so, so that now adoption is far more on people's minds when they think about the, the, the development of their own families and the like. Well, I mean, it's an amazing thing, this ad- adopting a child, you bring one in who in so many cases, this probably is not always the case, but it is most often the case, you bring in this child who was in a condition which if they stayed in that condition would have been utterly horrible i mean lack of love lack of care and, and 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 probably deprivation of all kinds and now that child is brought into an environment where there is tenderness and warmth and care and love that is given and 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 training and discipline those aspects as well but but why because this parent loves this child and makes that child his or her own and commits to that child everything that is needed for that child's well-being and that child's growth. That is love of a parent to an adopted child. In love, He predestined you to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself. Isn't it amazing? So, yes, the love of God is particular. Is particular to His own adopted children. Or, Here's another passage. Ephesians 5:27, I'm sorry, verse 25, very famous passage that we hear oftentimes in the, in the context of a marriage ceremony or something like that. "Husbands love your wives." Now what's the next part? "As Christ loves the world, generally, right? Oh no. As Christ loves the church and gave himself for her." that He might sanctify her, that He might purify her, that she would be, catch this, that she would be in the end, end of verse 27, holy and blameless. Same phrase as in Ephesians 1.4. The Father chose us from eternity past, before He created the world, to be holy and blameless. What does the Son do by His work on the cross? He does everything necessary to make us in the end, at the end of the sanctification process, holy and blameless to fit the Father's design from the beginning. So this love that Christ has for his bride is marked by selectivity, is marked by particular attention for her, his love for her that is distinct. Now, he... Maybe this will help to get this idea across how important it is to embrace the notion that the love that God has for His own is a distinctive love. You really do not understand what it means that God loves you if you are a believer. If the only conception you have of the love of God is equally distributed favor on all people. You don't get it. It would be as if I went home after this retreat to my wife Jody. And I said to to Jody as I walk in the door, Honey, I love you. Now what if Jody in her mind, she had one conception of love. When she heard the words, Honey, I love you, here's what she thought. Oh, Bruce has an attitude and a disposition toward me that he has toward every single person he meets. It's just the same for everybody. Everybody. And if I thought that that's what she was thinking when I said, honey, I love you, what what do you think I would want to say to her? Jody, you are not getting it. You don't understand. When I say I love you, I mean you in a particular way. It's not the same as everyone else out there. I am committed to you. I am devoted to your well-being, your your flourishing, your prospering as a woman that, that I might, by God's grace, be used by him that you would grow in becoming more and more what he has called you to be, redeemed you to be in Christ. I am committed to you in a particular way that is not like my love for anyone else out there. I think God would want to say the same thing to a host of His own children who think the love of God is only, simply, one thing. Universal, equally distributed favor to all people without exception. He would say, you don't get it. You don't understand that I love you in a way that is so incredibly specific and particular and targeted and committed and devoted to everything necessary for your well-being. <clears throat> I will not fail to express to you the full extent of my love that is a saving love, a redeeming love, a covenantal love that will make of you the most that you can be as I make you like my very son, as I purify you and make you a holy people, as I bring you into my own family. This is my love I have for you. Do you see it, my friends? The love of God in its most extensive expression in the Bible is his love for his own that is particular and incredibly powerful. Do you know the love of God for you if you're a believer? It is amazing. It is powerful. It is a devoted love. And oh, I want so badly by God's grace that he would use this time this morning to help open our eyes to see the love that he has for his own. Well, one passage we're going to focus on... That helps express this is Isaiah 43. Turn there if you you would please in your Bibles. Isaiah 43 verses 1 through 7. And here we see an expression of the love of God that is just astonishing. Let me read the, the first seven verses of Isaiah so we have the context in mind. And then we'll work through this together. Isaiah 43, verse 1, I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place, and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Well, this is an amazing passage, my friends, that expresses the redemptive covenantal love that God has for His own. It begins in verse 1 with the formation of the people of God as His own people. Look, look at how it begins. Verse 40, uh, chapter 43, verse 1, But now, the but now signals a change In in the way God has been dealing with His people. If you look back just the the last couple verses of chapter 42 leading up to this. look, Look with me. Verses 23 to 25. The end of chapter 42. This is God's dealing with His own people here. He says, Who among you will give ear to this? Who will give heed and listen hereafter? Who gave Jacob up for spoil? And Israel up to plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways we were not willing to walk and whose law they did not obey? So he poured out on him, that is on Jacob, the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set him aflame all around, yet Jacob did not recognize it. It burned him, but he paid no attention." So here is God's statement to his own people Israel. I have brought judgment upon you in order to demonstrate to you the righteousness of my standards that you are ignoring and and, and that you are disobeying. You have turned from me as as an idolatrous, rebellious people. And so my judgment is against you. Chapter 43, verse 1. But now, oh... Have you noticed this in the prophets? How often this is the case. This exact parallel that we see right here. This juxtaposition that we see right here. Of stated judgment followed by mercy. Kindness. Forgiveness. And here, here is the point my friends. The final word of God to his people. Is not the word we would expect. The, the, the word of judgment that we deserve. The final word of God to his people is a word of restoration, forgiveness, renewal, of bringing them back to himself, restoring them to be the people of God. He has covenanted himself to take as his own, and he will stop at nothing to care for them and make it happen. So verse 1 signals the, the mercy, the goodness of God that he does not Treat us as our sins deserve. Do you remember that verse in Psalm 103? I think of it often. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He rather treated his son as our sins deserve. Did he not? Indeed. So here, here is this opening indication that judgment is over. The, the, the reconciliation to God has begun. Now why them? Why does he pledge to them? Why is it that his final word to them is not a word of judgment? That it is a word of, of restoration? Why? Here's the answer. Because they're his people. Look at verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, your, your creator, O Jacob, <clears throat> he who formed you, O Israel. Now those words that are used there are terms that are used. That is Hebrew terms that are used in Genesis 1 and 2 of the creation of the heavens and the earth, of the forming man from the dust of the ground, sh- shaping him into the man, breathing in him the breath of life. Those words are the same words used back then of creation generally. Now they're used here of the creation of this people as his own. This is not, this is not in the context of, Jacob, you like everyone else out there is, is part of the creation of God. That's not the point. The point is rather you are created by me to be my people. You are formed by me to be my people. In fact he goes on not only are they created by him formed by him. Verse 1 do not fear for I have redeemed you. So God is to them not only creator but redeemer. Of course you know in the context that what he's referring to principally is the action of God in the Exodus. When He redeemed them, He bought them out of slavery by a mighty hand. And we'll think more about that in a few moments because the text will take us back to that Exodus event in a few minutes here. So God created them as His people. He he redeemed them as His people. And then look at the end of verse 1. I have called you by name. Wow! How precious is that! Who names a newborn child? Parents, right? You know, every now and then at our church, Clifton Baptist Church, where my wife and I are members in Louisville, we have a lot of seminary families. And these days, as you know, as is true in your church, I've I've discovered, there are many families that are having a lot of children, you know? So we have this constant, I mean, Jody talks about it as her part-time job is to visit the hospital with a newborn child and to bring meals. I mean, it just is never, never, never ending. And, And every now and then, when we hear the announcement of a newborn and the name comes out, Jody and I will look at each other and go, Really? They can't be serious. No, You just think this poor child is going to get stuck with that for the rest of their lives, you know. So, But you know what? Then we back up and say, but you know what? So what? What we think. We're not the parents, right? So parents have rights of jurisdiction. Isn't that the point? This is God who names them. I call you by name. You are mine. You hear it. This, this is God's ownership of them. He names them because they're his. They are his people. Now, this verse has a little detail in it that makes it even more significant. Look back again. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. Anybody pick up on it? Who, who, who is Jacob and Israel? It's the same person right? But Jacob was his name given by his parents, right? Israel was God's renaming of Jacob. I rename you, Jacob, Israel. And he then became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So, indeed, God renamed him, indicating you are mine. And so what is true of Jacob is really true for all of the people of God. He names us like a parent names his or her own children. And and, and so identifies you are mine. You have a distinctive place in my heart, in, in my covenant commitment, in my devotion that is unlike any other people on the face of the earth. You are my people. I am your God. I commit myself to you. All right, now moving on. Verse 2, God's covenant, redemptive covenantal commitment to his people expressed. So because they are his own people, look at what he says to them. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. You get the point. This is not the general omnipresence of God, whereby He is with everyone all the time, which is also true. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a sense in which the love of God, universal at one level, particular at another level, is also true of the presence of God. Omnipresent, He's with all people everywhere, but He is in a particular way present with His own people. I use the phrase, it may not be the best one, but I think it's you got to come up with something to distinguish this from omnipresent. I call it the manifest presence of God. The presence of God manifest in His particular love and care, His, his protection and provision for His own. It's kind of like, I remember when our two girls were little, and... Uh, we would take them to the playground. I'm I'm talking about, you know, four, five, six years old. And we would go to the playground, and uh, they're learning to climb on the monkey bars, you know, or learning to climb the stairs up to the top of the slide and the like. And there's a sense in which I as dad was with all of the kids in the playground, but I was with them in a very particular way, watching carefully. And a couple times, in God's mercy, uh, you know, was there just in time to scoop them up before they hit the ground. You know, that, that actually did happen a few times. Uh, thank, you know, the Lord has given me quick reflexes, and they have come in handy a few times, you know. <coughs> so here, here is the manifest. Now, by the way, that illustration, the problem with using it is the, the, the contrast between the best parent on the best of his or her days And God is so huge, it almost mocks the illustration, right? I mean, we as parents fail. We we, we could be there but not be there, if you know what I mean. I mean, that, that can happen. But this is God. This is God who is omnipotent, who is sovereign in his power, whose love is perfect, and he is the one who is with you. So when you pass through the waters, I, God, Will be with you, my son, my daughter, my own, whom I have named. I am with you. Through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. So, my friends, this is not the general statement of God's disposition toward all people in the world, this is His committed love. His redemptive covenantal love expressed to His own people. Let me read those two verses again, just stressing the I and the you relationship of God to His people. (coughs) Verse 1, But now thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Now, by the way, just a comment. Don't read verse 2 as indicating prosperity teaching. We, we, will, we will be spared from all troubles. We will be spared from any kind of injury or any kind of accident or anything like this. I mean, obviously, in context of the way God deals with his own people, consider my servant Job. Just to pick up one, consider my servant Job. He says to Satan, who came to visit God one day, have you, have you noticed how he obeys me, how, how he follows me, how, how committed he is to me? And what does God allow Satan to do? bring incredible affliction upon his servant Job. So don't think that this means spared from any kind of difficulty, affliction, accident that will take place. But here's what it means. None of those things can harm you ultimately. They will always and only be used for your growth and well-being. They will always serve good purposes in your lives. They will not be in the end negative. They will be in the end positive. Because I am committed to you, says the Lord. That's what this is about. Okay, so we see the redemptive covenantal love of his people expressed in verse 2. Now, verses 3 and 4. This is where it gets especially difficult. i just tell you right up front, this is not easy for even even mature Christians who have known the Lord a long time, who who have grown theologically a fair bit. This is not easy for even strong Christians to to see. But my friends, it is the Bible. I am not making this up. Read it yourself. It is the word of the Lord to us. Listen to verses 3 and 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So that's the lead thought, Savior. When has God saved His people Israel? Ah, back to, back to the Exodus. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, which are regions in the south of Egypt. So we're, this is just speaking of Egypt again, using those regions as... Uh, indicators of the the country as a whole, I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored, and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Isn't that what happened at the Exodus? Now, I'm going to take you back to the Exodus for a minute here and think about what you already know. Here's the question. Have you thought about it? I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know about the Exodus. Have you thought about it? What happened? Well, as you know, the, the people of Israel ended up in Egypt. The whole Joseph story, all of that, God provided for them through Joseph. So they settled there because there was food to eat and, and, they, and they prospered there. God prospered them in Egypt and they became a very um, uh, numerous people. And, uh, and then there arose in Egypt a king, a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Okay, so that's just when things change. All of a sudden, the people of Israel Who in Egypt have been favored are now disfavored, and they become slaves to the Egyptians. Though they are a numerous people, they they have a lot of force. They are under the heavy hand of this Pharaoh who does not know Joseph and doesn't know the Lord. And they are they are miserable as slaves in Egypt. So they cry out to the Lord. And the end of Exodus 2, we won't take time to read it, but the end of Exodus 2, God heard their cries. He, he saw their affliction and he came down to deliver. Well, that's when he met Moses then in the, the burning bush episode in Exodus chapter 3. That's where he declares, I am Yahweh. You know, when you go back to, to Egypt and the people ask you, who sent you? Tell them, I am sent you, the name Yahweh, that I am for you, I am with you, I am your God, I am committed to your salvation. That's all wrapped up in the I am language in Exodus 3.14. So, Moses goes back to Egypt, and he is instructed by God to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. But God told Moses, this is in Exodus 4, before Moses even goes back. He tells Moses, when you say, let my people go to Pharaoh... I will harden his heart so he will not let them go because I will demonstrate my love for my son, my firstborn, Israel, by taking his son, his firstborn, throughout the land of Egypt. This is the Bible, this is what God declared. Now, let me just pause. When we come across things like this and something within us says, that can't be, why is that? And there's a very simple answer to this. Why is that? That we, we kind of have this reflex of that can't be. And it's because we have been trained with sensibilities from our culture that do not reflect the teaching of God's word. So what we have to do, my friends, if your instincts tell you this can't be, but the Bible says it is, then what has to happen is our instincts have to be retrained. And there's only one way to do this. It is by submitting to the truth of God's word. I mean, there are lots of people out there who claim that the Bible is their full authority. But it isn't because they rewrite the Bible constantly. They don't like what's in the Bible. They, they, they make it say something that their intuitions tell them it must be. So honestly, we have to face this as fallen finite people, that our tendency is to go with our instincts. But here's the problem. Our instincts have been formed largely by the culture we live in. So may we be a people whose instincts are remade by the word of God. So here is God who says to to Moses, I am going to show how committed I am to you, my firstborn, my son, I will take the firstborn from Egypt. So this is how it develops. You'll remember, Moses goes back, there are nine plagues that happen in Egypt. And those nine plagues, all of them, Israel is spared and Egypt is harmed in certain ways. I mean, the frogs and the gnats and the bloody Nile and all of those various things that took place. Every one of them, Israel is spared from the the difficulties that that ensue, and Egypt experiences the the harm that takes place. Well, all of that is prelude for the last plague, as it were. (coughs) In the last plague, you'll remember, God told the people of Israel, take a lamb, cut its throat, and take the blood from that animal and put it over the doorposts of your house. Because I'm going to send an angel of death there to Egypt. And when that angel of death comes and sees the blood over the doorposts of your house, he will pass over. Hence, this is the Passover celebration that that is carried forward in the religious life of Israel. Carried on today uh, among among, uh, uh, Orthodox Jews. I will pass over your homes and go over to Egypt. And I will... Kill the firstborn in all of the homes of Egypt. Every stall in Egypt, the firstborn will be killed. Now, my friends, there is another way God could have done this. He could have delivered Israel from Egypt without any harm coming to the Egyptians. Could He not? I mean, I, a very feeble, weak, uh, ignorant human being can think of a way to do it. And if I can, I think God can, here's how He could have done it. He could have put a stupor upon the Egyptians and they sleep for 48 hours. I mean goodness, they would wake up at the end of that going, wow, did that ever feel good. My goodness, what a great day this is, you know. Oh, by the way, Israel's God. Oh, who cares about that, you know. Wow, I feel good. You know, He could have done it that way in a way that no harm would befall the Egyptians. Could he not? But he did not do it that way. And instead, purposely, deliberately, do you believe those words? Purposely, deliberately, redeemed his own people Israel by demonstrating his just judgment against the Egyptians. They got only a portion of what they actually deserved as the firstborn of their homes were were killed. I mean, the judgment they deserved was far worse than that, but they got a portion of the judgment that they deserved, whereas Israel was spared that judgment. And so God deliberately saved His people of Israel against the backdrop of His disfavor of the Egyptians. Now, this is a really critical point in this discussion. Is it possible that the reason, what accounts for his favoring his own people, the people of Israel, against the backdrop of disfavoring the Egyptians and bringing the judgment upon them is because of the moral disparity between the Egyptians and the Israelites respectively. So on balance, yeah, those Egyptians, they got what they deserved. But the Israelites, they, they were the people of God. They didn't deserve the the. the, uh, the same judgment that the Egyptians got. And so God didn't bring to them judgment because they didn't deserve it whereas the Egyptians got the judgment they deserved. Is that a possibility? Well I suppose it's a possibility but it is not the case. How do we know it is not the case? Well we don't know specifically, not in any detail from the book of Exodus itself. That is the the moral state of Israel that God redeemed. The moral status of Israel that God redeemed, that he brought out of Egypt by a mighty hand and, and, and spared them, we, we learn from the book of Ezekiel. So turn with me to a passage in Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. It is one of the most astonishing statements in the Bible that helps us understand the nature of God's saving work of his own people Israel in the Exodus. Exodus. Pick up with, with me at verse 5. <coughs> by the way, the context here is that Ezekiel, many, many generations later, of course, after the Exodus, Ezekiel is very bothered by the fact that God is not bringing judgment upon the wickedness of the Israelites. And he says, why why don't you judge them for their sin? And, and God's answer basically to Ezekiel is, you know what, Ezekiel, they've always been this way. From the very beginning, they have been a disobedient, hard-hearted, rebellious people. Let me tell you what they were like back in the day. So that's what he does. Takes us back to the Exodus time period. Verse 5. Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and I swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God. On that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them flowing with milk and honey which is the glory of all of the lands. And I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Verse 8 but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Stop, don't read further, just a second. Isn't it clear? Israel was just as guilty as the Egyptians. They they were entering into idolatry, worshiping the idols of Egypt. And God told them, quit it don't do this. And they refused. Even though they knew they were the people of God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. I'm thinking of the language in Romans 1. But rather than giving them up, God saves them. Now, here's the question. How, how serious did God view their offense to be? That they did not rid themselves of the idols of Egypt. How serious was this in God's sight? Now keep reading. Right where we left off. I'll read at the beginning of verse 8 again. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes. Nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them. To accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. There it is. How bad is their sin? I pledge to judge them right there in the land of Egypt. To bring destruction on them for their sin. Well, why didn't he do it if they deserved it? Next verse. It's another Ephesians 2, 4 moment. (laughs) Indeed. But... But, verse 9, I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. And he goes on to describe how he delivered them, how how he favored them, uh, showed blessing to them, bringing them into a new land, and so on. Now, here's the point. God had chosen them for His own people. He had pledged Himself to them. He could not go back on His word. This is why this this sense of the love that God has for His own is covenantal. It's a covenant that God establishes with them. You know, we as Christians, New Testament Christians, are part of a covenant. Did you know that? It's called the New Covenant. That God has made with those who he brings into his own family. Those whom he takes to himself. They are part of a new covenant where God pledges to them. He will do everything necessary for their full and final restoration into complete holiness. That they will know the Lord, as Jeremiah 31 describes that. Now, so here is God's covenant to the people of Israel. He has pledged Himself to be their God. They will be His people, and so He would not bring upon them the judgment they deserved, while He brought upon the Egyptians the judgment they deserved. Do you see it? So, back, back to Isaiah 43. It is so clear that when you look at why it is That God did not bring upon the Israelites the judgment, but he did bring upon the Egyptians the judgment, though Israel deserved the very same thing. And if you look at Isaiah 43, what is the reason? What is the answer for this? Well, here again, here it is, verse 4. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in in your place and other people in exchange for your life and this is exactly what happened in the exodus so here is the love of god that he has for his own that not only in this particular context indicates he loves them in a way that he doesn't love others it's stronger than that here isn't it he loves them against the backdrop of his judgment of others and really this is just, you know, the, the, the exodus is a microcosm of what will happen at the end of the age when, when there is heaven and hell. What will heaven and hell demonstrate? Ah, oh, oh, I, I mean, the, the, the fact that we will one day be there where this is happening, it's just stunning. This, this day is coming when God will bring into heaven all of those whom he has saved in his Son. Uh, Whom He has pledged His everlasting covenantal commitment to show them endless joy and blessing. To bring to them endless delights. I mean, He is infinitely creative. I mean, a billion years from now, He will be unopening presence, as it were, for us to unwrap and see yet a new expression of His love and grace and mercy that will never, ever end. So that display of saving kindness is set against the backdrop of just judgment of others. But here's the thing, my friends. Is the disparity here, the saved and the lost, is the disparity a moral one on our level? where we don't deserve the judgment they got. They're getting what they deserve, but, but we don't deserve that, so that's why we're getting into heaven. Oh, no! Oh, no! You don't understand the gospel if you think that way. No, indeed, every one of us will realize the judgment that is coming to all of those who are consigned to everlasting punishment is judgment we deserve before God. And He did not give it to us because He designed a means by which all of that judgment that we deserved would be borne by His Son in our place, bearing our sin, receiving the cup of wrath. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not the physical affliction that was mostly on the mind of Christ, as he prayed three times, Father, if you be willing, listen to what he says, Father, if you be willing, let this cup pass from me. What cup is that? Goodness, a number of Old Testament indicators. This is the cup of divine wrath against sin. He bore not only our sin, He bore the wrath of God against our sin. So we will know on that day, we will know as we enter into endless bliss and glory that the judgment they deserved is exactly the judgment we deserve too. And Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. So, (laughs) indeed, it's an amazing scene. The Exodus is a microcosm of heaven and hell in the end, where we see the covenantal love of God shown to His own. Moving ahead, verses 5 and 6. The covenantal pledge to His people extended. The covenantal pledge of His people extended. So you ask... How many are going to get in on this? Oh, my goodness. Listen to these words from the Lord, this love that He has for His own. Verse 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. Notice it's not this generation to whom Isaiah speaks because they're going into captivity. They're toast. They're going to receive the heavy hand of God's judgment upon them because of their sin. But God has not given up on the people of Israel. There will be a day, he says, when I will restore them. I think my own eschatology is that has yet to happen. That God will save Israel in the end. Romans eleven twenty six. all Israel will be saved. After the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in, that's the full number of elect throughout the nations of the world, then he will save his own people, Israel. It has yet to happen. But here is his pledge. Do not fear. I will bring your offspring from the east, gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. You see again that familial language. My sons, my daughters, they're my children who are indisciplined, and that's why they're in the nations, that's why they're scattered all over, is because the heavy hand of my discipline has been upon them, but I will bring them back north, south, east, west, indicates how extensive God will, 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 will operate to bring them back. He will not lose any of them. All of them will be brought back. And notice not only the the, the, the certainty of his salvation, I will do it, the extensiveness of it, but it is, it is something that will happen for these people in a future time. He will grant to them in this future deliverance, future salvation, bringing them into his presence forever. And this, of course, confirms what I said earlier in the message. The final word of God to his disobedient, hard-hearted, rebellious, idolatrous, punishment deserving people is not the punishment they deserve. His final word to them is a word of restoration, of kindness to deliver, to forgive, to renew, to remake so they are forever his people and he will be forever their God. what mercy God is showing to them. Now finally, last uh, verse, verse 7. God's redemptive covenantal end for His people extolled. What is the ultimate purpose that we see here? Look at verse 7 with me. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created, that picks up the language back from verse 1, right? He created them, He formed them, even whom I have created for my glory whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, notice a couple things here. Number one is, back in verse 1, do you remember that precious, precious truth? I have called you by name. You are mine. Now, verse 7, notice the difference. Everyone who is called by my name. Do you hear the difference? Verse 1, I have called you by name. Verse 7, I have called you by my name. Now here's what it means. I'll illustrate it for you. I am Bruce Ware. No surprise, you know that. Bruce is verse 1. My parents called me by name Bruce. So that's that's their designation. I've been stuck with it my whole life. You know, like it or not, that's my name. That's what my parents gave me. They called me by name Bruce. But I'm Bruce Ware. Ware is verse 7. I am called by their name, in particular by my dad's name, which he reminded me of a number of times when I was a teenage boy. <laughs> Bruce, remember, the where name is at stake. You know, you know that's, that's sort of a, a, a lecture I got a number of times from my dad. Not inappropriate, uh, necessarily, uh, and sometimes helpful. But here's the point. We are called by his name. We bear not only the particular name of God's individual choosing of your name. I mean, I don't know. I, I have a hunch. You know, with, with people you love dearly, you oftentimes come up with uh, special names for them. You know, our older daughter, Bethany, is Spuds. You know, when, whenever there's a tender moment with her, it's Spuds. Because I, we, we talked about her when she was really little. She was our firstborn. And, and we, we said, well, she's like a sack of potatoes. You know, it's what she felt like when I lifted her up. She's like a sack of potatoes. So I began calling her spuds. And that, that has become a, a term of endearment. You know, that just she and I have. No, nobody else calls her that. I call her spuds. And, uh, and she loves it. It's, it's a daddy-daughter thing, right? Well, here, here is the daddy of all daddies. The father who created and formed and redeemed you and named you. My, my sense is, my, my, my conviction is that he has a special name for every one of us he even gave to his own son a special name that we don 't know right uh, there, there's, a, there's a name in, you know in Philippians two it says that every knee will bow and every tongue will will uh, uh, give, give praise to, to the son they, they will cry out, "Jesus is Lord but before that it says that uh, Let's see, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave to him a name which is above every name. This is a new name. It's not the name Jesus. That name had been given before. That was given at the incarnation. You shall name him Jesus because he will deliver his people from their sins. So he's given a new name. We see this again in Revelation 20, uh, sorry, Revelation 19 when he comes again on a white horse. He has a name written on him which no one knows which no one knows. So I think that name is the same name in Revel- in Philippians 2, that he gives him a new name. You know, God, God names things. So do we. I mean, we are God-like when we name things. Have you, ever, have you ever thought how incredible it is that everything is named? I mean, there's not a thing out there that you can look at that doesn't have a name. If you're a biologist, it gets more interesting, doesn't it? Because now you're talking about incredible details of organisms, and they all have names. Every street has a name. You know, what if, what if they didn't? So, and we, we name because God names. So, here is God naming His own children, indicating the preciousness of the particularity of His love and commitment to them. But then, ah, we are given His name. We bear the family name of God. Oh, my, that should rest heavily but joyfully upon us as we walk through life, as we relate to others. We we represent the family name in all of our interactions, (coughs) all the ways in which we relate to people. So indeed, everyone who is called by my name, notice then in verse 7, whom I have created for my glory. There's a sense in which the glory of God, the magnificent display of His mercy, His kindness, His love, His his saving grace can only be manifest because He saves a people, as we've talked about a moment ago, who deserve judgment. But He does so against the backdrop of just judgment of others who deserve judgment. So in both cases, they deserve judgment. But here we are, the loved, the chosen, uh, the, the, the adopted, uh, the, the called. These are all biblical categories, are they not? We, we, we are those whom God has chosen to be His own people, named by Him to be His own people. And we receive everlasting joy. And that brings glory to God as the magnificence of His saving mercy is set against the backdrop of just judgment of sin. You know, really Romans 9, 22 and 23 gives expression to this in just that tiny little statement. What if God, although willing to endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He did so in order to, here's the purpose clause, in order to demonstrate His mercy on vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. You hear it? The magnificence of saving grace, of the goodness and love of God to His own, displayed against the backdrop of just judgment. And here it is. The glory of God is manifest. Even whom I have formed, even whom I have made. We, His people, demonstrate that. Well, a couple thoughts in conclusion as we wrap this up this morning. Many, many people think the main problem out there that we face in life is the problem of evil. And it's a big one. I mean, I'd mean, i be happy to talk about that with you at some point. But essentially, the problem of evil is, how could God be good and how could he be, be powerful if there's evil in this world? I mean, if he's good, he wouldn't want the, the evil to be there. If he's powerful, he could, he could bring an end to it. But, but look, there's evil, so he must, he must not exist or he must not be good or he must not be powerful. So this problem of evil, many, many people think that's the biggest problem out there that, that uh, God must face. But my friends, that is not the case. That's a problem we have contrived. God doesn't have a problem of evil. Here is the problem that God faces as He deals with a world of sinners. It's the problem of goodness. Not evil, the problem of goodness. How can God show kindness to people who deserve only His just judgment? That's the problem God faces. How can I show kindness, goodness, to people who deserve only just judgment? And we know the answer to this, don't we? He solved that problem. He dealt with that problem by devising a plan by which the just judgment we deserved was born by His Son. So that He could be, this is the language of Romans 3:27. I may have the verse wrong. That he might that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He cannot ignore our sin. That sin has to be dealt with. He would not be God if he overlooked sin. But if we bear our own sin, which is the other option, it's over. Uh, We we are in hell forever under the judgment of God. There's no way we, we could escape it. Nothing we could do to rid ourselves of that sin. So what did God design? A means by which he could be just. Namely, our sin paid for in full by what Christ did. That he might be just and the justifier. That he might declare us righteous through faith in Christ who bore our sin in his body on the cross. What an amazing thing. The problem of goodness. How can I show goodness, kindness to people who deserve judgment? Answer, the cross. Praise be to God for sending his son to bring this to pass. Finally, last point. We come back right full circle where we began this morning. Do you understand God's love for you. If you are a believer, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have not, well, let me just take a minute to say, if you have not put your faith in Christ, if you don't don't know that you are in fact part of his family, uh, then goodness, today you should talk to someone who is a believer and can help guide you into the very simple steps to take to, to become a believer in Christ, to, to know of what God has done for you in Christ, the saving work that is only possible through what Christ has done, and to trust in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of, e- of eternal life. And then, through faith alone, you enter into relationship with God. You are brought into His family. You are then, you know right then, you are among those who are loved by God with a saving love? Do you know, those of you who are believers, do you know His love for you that is much more like a parent for his or or her own children or a husband for his own wife than it is for love for all people everywhere? This is God's love for you. Embrace it, my friends. Relish it. Don't despise it. What would you think of a wife who despised the genuine, heartfelt uh, uh, expression of love of that husband for his wife? You would think, what an ingrate? You know, this is, just, this is just not right. So my friends, let's not be ingrates. Let, let, let us relish the love that God has, apart from any merit of ourselves, apart from any works we have done in righteousness, there are none, apart from anything we deserve, He chose us to be the objects of His love. Don't despise it, relish it, cherish it, and go to Him uh, in, in ways you have never even thought of before. As one who is loved by him in such a magnificent way. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning, for the joy of being able to look again at a passage of scripture that, that portrays for us this beauty of your love and kindness to us. And we pray, Father, that you would grant us hearts that would grow in our understanding of your love and then express that in worship. Adoration and obedience of life before you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.